Well, good morning once again. Today's topic is going to be on what Jesus shows us about the Father. And we'll be talking about several different topics. And Matt gave me this idea for a lesson. So if I mess up, it's his fault. So uh, anyways, uh, first thing that I wanted to look at, and that font is showing up weird. Uh, but anyways, hopefully y'all can see that. The main point, uh, one of the first points I'm going to look at is the idea that he is interested in the affairs of men. And in that he is willing and he has intervened directly on man's behalf. And we have this idea, I wish that font was bigger, it was supposed to be bigger, and of this idea of called deism and You've probably heard this in regards to some of the founding fathers of this country. There seems to be this never-ending debate that these men were deists. They didn't actually, they weren't Christians or whatever it may be. And what this means is that they uh, believe, they this belief in the existence of a supreme being, uh, specifically of a creator who does not intervene in the universe. And so this is basically... Um, God has created the earth, and He just lets it do, He lets it do its own thing. He kind of it's just like winding up a clock and just letting it go. And this is a very prevalent idea in the 17th and 18th centuries, and to a degree that still uh, exists today. And it says that they accepted the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but rejected belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with humankind. All right, so pay attention to that last part. They rejected the belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with humankind. So is that true? Uh, Does God not interact in any way uh, with people? And I think that's obviously false, and I think we see that most clearly uh, through His Son and through that plan of salvation that He's given us through His Son. In Ephesians 3, and verses 8 and 10, it says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. All right? So, we see Paul. He's preaching amongst the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he's talking about this fellowship of the mystery. And, and, and Paul often talks about the, you know, the gospel and this plan as a mystery. And... Uh, to a degree, for a long time it was. He says it was from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, and yet now it has been fully revealed. But notice that it's from the beginning of the ages. So this mystery was planned, uh, even uh, you know from the beginning of ages, as Paul puts it. So God has already set forth that this is what's going to have to happen. He already knows uh, that there's going that Christ is going to have to come uh, to save men. And so we see him, kind of borrowing from the language of that definition, interacting with mankind, 
directly. And you also think about not just with Christ, but what had to happen before Christ. And all the things, all the, the, the blocks that had to be set just right so that Christ would appear on the scene. And so now it's been uh, given, uh, this mystery has been given uh, to us through uh, Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14, this is what I referenced in the 9 o'clock class. But it says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the same idea being brought forth here, that these individuals were chosen for salvation, and how were they going to receive the salvation? They were receiving it through sanctification by the Spirit and also the belief in the truth, how do we know about the truth? How do we be sanctified? How do we sanctified by the Spirit? Well, we can receive that knowledge through the gospel, that written word, that message that was proclaimed by the apostles. And we see here God calling us uh, by the gospel. So think about interacting with mankind here. He's calling us by the gospel. And also we see that from the beginning, we see uh, that there was all, already this plan of salvation that was in the mind of God before any of us ever existed, and that there was going to be a need uh, for that. So we see all that, and, and it's plain uh, that God cares for us. He's interested in, in the affairs of men. He's willing to uh, uh, intervene directly uh, for man. <clears throat> Moving on, we see that... Uh, uh, through Jesus, we see, we see that God shows no partiality uh, to man. There is no favoritism uh, towards, uh, towards anyone. In John 5 and verse 30, it says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And oftentimes we talk about this topic as in regards to um, you know what we shall be doing, or maybe the, the work of the church, and how God, and how Jesus views uh, God's authority. And notice what he says. He says he's only seeking the will of the Father. Okay, so he's only seeking the will of the Father, and he's doing nothing. All right, so he's doing nothing but the will of the Father. And also think about: uh, Is there any part of the Father's will that Jesus uh, basically that Jesus could not do, or he could get away with not doing? We know that he's doing just the will of the Father, but is there some things in which he could just omit? Well, obviously the answer to that is no. Uh, we see that he came to, that he, he fulfilled the law. He, he, complete, he perfectly uh, did the things in the law. There was nothing that he uh, failed to do or didn't do correctly. There was nothing in which he did in which he committed sin. And so the point that I'm driving home here is that as far as a standard, Jesus here was held to a, a similar standard as anybody else in the world. There was not any special privileges uh, that he had. And uh, we also see in Hebrews 5, verses 8 through 9, that he was only doing the will of the Father. And we see here uh, that he suffered. So he, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. 
And having been perfected, he became the altar of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he obeyed, and so he did the things, the will of the Father. He did all of his will, and we also see that he suffered. And through that, we see that he learned obedience. He truly knew what it meant. And, and also in Hebrews, we see that he was in all points tempted as we are. So we, he's tempted, he, he suffered, and he did the will of the Father. All right? And so looking at this, it's very clear that he, that he was held to the same center. And even the, the Father, in this particular sense, as far as obeying the law and, and God's will, he was held to the same center that we are, that we ought to obey all of it, and the Son had to obey all of it as well. So he shows no partiality uh, to the Son in this in this regards. Romans 14 and verses 11 through 12, it says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us shall give account of himself uh, to God. And so here we have that everyone, whether willingly or forcibly, is going to, you know, every tongue is going to confess God, every knee is going to bow to God, and then also everyone is going to give account of themselves to God. There's going to be a day of judgment in which everyone is going to have to, there's going to be this day of reckoning for everyone. Uh, and so the things that we have done that's good or bad is going to be laid bare. There's not going to be anything that's hidden from God. Hebrews 4, verse 13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And there may be some ways, you know, sometimes we get this idea that we can just, if we just cover up stuff, we just do it secretly, it's going to be fine. Nobody is ever going to find this out. And in some cases that might be true. Nobody may find this out here. But recognize that God sees everything that we do. There's no creature hidden from his sight. And so believer, unbeliever alike, they're all going to give account for the things that they have done. And all things are naked and open uh, to the eyes of him. Also, so we see that he is interested in the affairs of men. He's showing no partiality. We also see where... He will give the truth uh, to anyone who wants it. At Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so they look at that and say, well, we're, he's talking about maybe prayer here. But think about the principle here. And also uh, in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 29, there's the same idea that's brought forth that if you truly seek God, you're going to find him. If you seek him, you're going to find him. And, and think about what is said with this, this relationship between the man and, and the father, uh, or the, the, the father and the son. That if the son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? If a person is willing, really, seeking the truth, wanting it, praying for it, 
Is God just going to say, well, I'm not going to do anything on that behalf. I'm just going to, that's, that's your own problem. Or is there going to be some, or this guy's going to work in some providential way to perhaps let him see the truth. Maybe even get a glimpse of the truth. And I think what we can draw here, and we'll look at other passages, that, that seems that, like this is the case. We already seen in Deuteronomy 4 that if, if, if I ask for it, if I really want it, God's going to give it to us. And, and will those that seek the truth be blocked from it by God? So if, if I'm wanting this bread or if I'm wanting this fish, is he going to give me a stone or a serpent? And we see here that clearly that's not the case. And we see that God is going to give good things to those who ask him. So, again, if we seek it and truly seek it, uh, God's going to reveal those things uh, to us. Luke chapter 17, verse 33 says, Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Again, this verse is kind of a different context, but I think it fits it. And you think about that if I am wanting to save my soul, I'm, you know, seeking eternity, uh, what is that going to require of me? I'm going to have to let all of these things in this world, uh, let all of these things in the world go. And if I'm willing to do that, and I'm truly seeking for that eternal life, well, then I'm going to be able to find that life. And I think here that whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. I think that's in regards here in this, in this, uh, in this verse as in regards to his physical life. But think about that in regards to our spirit, our soul. If I'm seeking to save my soul, what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to lose it. And we see here the, the inverse relationships between them. And if I seek to save my soul... Well, then I'm, it seems as though, yeah, you're going to be able to save your soul, but in, in contrast to that, you're going to have to give up the things of this earth. That it's not, that it's not going to be barred uh, from you, but you're going to be able to receive it, but you're going to have to give up some things. And also, not only will he uh, give us the truth, but he also has given us, I guess you would say, maybe some guiding lights to kind of point us to the way. He doesn't just leave us. Uh, he doesn't just put us in the world, and if I'm, and with, I'm without a Bible, there's no way for me to find the truth. Well, that's not the case. We actually see uh, that God has given us ways to actually know of him outside of the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 17 and verses 22 through 27 it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands, and though he needed anybody, anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, 
though he is not far from each one of us. So we see this situation, and it's really interesting that they have this altar for the unknown God. And I just think that's interesting because they kind of know that there's there's something else out there. They have their idols. They have, you know, whatever their, all their different types of worship. But yet they know that there's something else out there that they, they're, they're at least, they're not quite following. And Paul says that I proclaim this unknown God to you. And notice uh, that he says at the very end of this passage that he's made men from every, from one blood, but he says that he has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. So they're on this earth and... Because of that, the, the limitations of the earth, that they should, that they just realize that there's something more out there. There's something different out there. There's some creator. There's some, as Paul puts, this unknown God that's out there. And so that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And I just find that interesting because they're, they're, they're at this altar and then Paul reveals this unknown God to them. And so, in a way, it's kind of a kind of a fulfilling of what he has said at the very end that they maybe, in a sense, were seeking this unknown God, and yet they were delivered this word uh, to them uh, from Paul. They found him, in a sense, with what Paul has said, and if they're willing to truly uh, follow him. But yet God has sent them, as he puts these pre-apported times and boundaries, for what purpose? That they should seek the Lord and that they might grope for him. And notice he says, find him though he is not far from each one of us. He's not far. We can find him. Again, if we want him, he's there. In Romans 1 and verses 19 through 20, it says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. All right? Uh, we talk about this verse very frequently. Okay? And we see that these people, these individuals, are without excuse. So they should have known of God. And why? Because... His invisible attributes are clearly seen. They're being understood by the things that are made. So through creation, we could know of God. We can know that there is a creator. So much that everyone is without excuse. And so again, we think about this idea that, that he's, he's going to give the truth to those that seek it, and yet he's giving us information, these, you know, these guiding lights, these guidestones, to point us to the right direction. And uh, he's given us plenty of, of opportunities and ways uh, to, uh, to know him. All right? Our next point is that prayer uh, means something to him, means a lot to him. Uh, but take heed to how you pray. In Matthew 6 and verses 5 through 8, it says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. 
Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. All right? So he's saying here, well, if you just pray any way that you want to or however, it's all it's all good, right? Well, no, that's simply not the case. There is a way uh, for you to pray as prescribed by Jesus. And, and basically, as he puts he says, go into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father. And I think what we can see here is do these, from the context, do these things in profit, and you don't do these things in a way that's as, in a way just to be seen by men we see that these hypocrites as jesus puts it he says they they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men they're not really worried about whether god hears them uh, they're just doing these things to you know so people look at them people will be like man that's a, you know that's a real religious individual there and jesus says they have their reward their reward is that you know that men like them but God is not pleased with them. Uh, don't use these vain repetitions as well. And he says, if you pray, if you pray in this right manner, doing it privately, seeking the Lord, we see the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So if you pray in this manner, you're going to be rewarded. Also, your Father knows uh, the things you have need of before you ask him. So there's no need to, to have these vain repetitions uh, in, in, in effort that you're, may, you may or may not be heard by God. God already, know, already knows, but he wants you uh, to tell him uh, what you need. And if you do it in the right manner, God is going to hear you and going to reward you for that. James 5 and verse 16 through 18 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. What is James trying to say here? He's saying prayer is powerful, and it has the ability to, to you know, change things. And he's and he's and he's uh, bringing up Elijah, in which he was able to pray for it to rain and to not rain. And again, uh, it's powerful. God's going to reward you. God hears your prayer, and it avails much, as James puts it. Moving on to a little different context in this idea of prayer, that in John chapter nine and verse thirty-one. There's an individual that says, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. And of course, this is not some inspired individual that's saying this, but this principle is, is true. We see that in the scriptures that, that, that just anyone, and we see in Matthew chapter 6, that just anyone is not going to be heard uh, from God. And we also know that those, those prayers that God does hear, uh, there's certain requirements to be met 
before he does hear them. In 1 John 5, verse 14, it says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So if our will aligns with his, and we pray for something that aligns with his will, he hears that prayer. Kind of similar to what we see here, that if anyone does his will, he hears them. And you think about that, what that means. Someone who does his will, do you think their wills are going to be pretty similar? Well, I think so. Pretty, they're going to be pretty close. Uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians 11, this need to imitate God, to be more like him, to, to be uh, like him in all aspects. And so we see here that there's a standard here. I can't just be asking, well, I just want a new car or I want a new house and God's going to give it to me. But if I do ask him according to his will, he's going to pay attention to those things. And finally, we see through Jesus that he cares about how we worship. And it was interesting, we were looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and this idea of being you know, separating from separated from these unbelievers. Uh, Andrew mentioned in chapter 7 this idea of being holy. And we see in Matthew 11, verses 15 through 17, a situation where we really see Jesus, I don't, just on top of my head, I don't see a situation where he just gets as offended, I don't know, if maybe angry, as he does as with this situation here. And, Think about the why. Why would he get so mad about this? And so they're in the temple. He said, Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And remember 9 o'clock we talked about that there were times when there was idols that were in the temple. And what was God's, what was God's um, opinion of all those idols in the temple? He is definitely not happy. All right? And why is that so? They had no part in that. There's false worship. They're, they're disobeying God. And then this, this, this holy or unholy things that are desecrating the temple there. It's supposed to be a place of worship, as as Jesus puts it, a house of prayer. And what are those individuals doing? Well, they're just, you know, they're just making money. They're running this business. They're, I'm, I'm assuming that they're probably doing some, probably some sketchy business deals, too, with this. And we see Jesus react in this manner. And I think it's clear that they are turning this, this holy area, into this just this common, you know, this common place, this common business. And I think that's a good lesson for us. When, when we think about worship and what God expects of us and what we deem as holy and unholy and how that affects our worship to him. I mean, do you think those people uh, that were the money changers, I mean, you think about how God viewed them, that they were sinners, they were unbelievers, they were defiling the temple. And we see here that Jesus, apparently he did the right thing by driving these individuals out, by, by, changing, uh, by changing what was being done in the temple to make that, turn that place into a holy place once more. 
In Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, it says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All right? So teaching as doctrines are the commandments of men. So what are the commandments of men? And really, that's anything that's not from God, not from Christ, you know, that come from the mind of man that just originated with him. Those are the commandments of men. You think about uh, all the things that maybe the Pharisees and Sadducees came up with and all their different teachings uh, that made several parts of the scriptures just useless. It just removed the power from those scriptures by their teachings. And you think about even today, uh, you think about the Pope and the things that they come up with seemingly about every year they're changing some teaching on, on something. And then we see throughout the last, you know, fifteen hundred years the different doctrines that have come forth uh, from the Catholic Church that had no, uh, that has no origination uh, from God's word. And these are the commandments of men. And so, what does Jesus say about this? That if they're doing this, uh, they worship me in vain. So we can draw here that I have to. Teach and believe the right things so that my worship can be effective. I can be, you know, I can be praying, I can be worshiping, I can be saying all the right things, but if my if my doctrines that I believe and teach are not right, all this is no good. Uh, I can honor him with his lips, but what does he say? Their heart is far from me. In Matthew 23 and verses 1 through 5, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to the works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do to be seen by men." They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. And so, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're telling you the right thing. You know, whatever they tell you to observe, do it. So they're teaching you correctly. But what's the problem here? What's the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, they say the right things, but they're not doing the right things. They're only doing things uh, for them to be seen by men. It says that they bind heavy burdens, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So they require a lot from the people that are listening to them. They require nothing from themselves. They're not willing to do any of this unless it benefited them publicly or politically or whatever it may be. And we see uh, that, Again, they're teaching the right things. We see in Matthew 15, you can teach and believe the right things, but if your heart is not right, guess what? None of that really means a whole lot to God. Your, their heart was far from them, from, from God, just like we've seen in Matthew chapter 15. And so when we go to worship, what are we doing it for? Are we doing it for show? We're just showing up so somebody doesn't, you know, start questioning, well, where did Evan, where is Evan at? Why did he miss? And I'm just showing up so I don't have to listen to those people, or I'm showing up so that I can put on some big production in front of other individuals, or am I doing it to truly worship God? 
What's the reason for us to, uh, to, to, to come here today, to study his word, to partake of the Lord's Supper? What's the reason? We're just doing it just so, just to get it over with? Or we're doing it with that right manner, that right heart, that we're truly uh, seeking to worship God? In John 4, verses 20 through, 23 through 24, it says, But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worship, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the worship is for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. All right? And so there's this same idea being brought forth here. I believe what he's talking about is in the spirit and truth, that you're coming there with the, the, really the, the right attitude, the right heart that you're coming to worship him uh, in, tr- in truth as well. And we see here that that is required for all worshipers, not that you just do it in accordance to the truth or you're not doing it just in accordance to the law, but you're doing it in the right heart as well. And he says, For the Father is seeking such to worship him. So the Father is seeking them. And does that fit you? Are you willing to do that? Do you want uh, to worship him in spirit and in truth? And so that's the end of my lesson. And, uh, you know, again, we see those those different points there that God's interested in our affairs. He shows no partiality, holds the same standard for, for everybody. You know, he's, uh, he's, he's, he wants us to pray, but do so in the right manner. And then we see where he uh, cares about how we worship him. And we see, you know, all in all those uh, different uh, aspects of the Father that we learn from Jesus, we see that through the Scriptures. And we also see how we can become uh, a Christian uh, through the Scriptures. We believe, we repent, we confess Christ, we be baptized in water for the remission of sins, and we continue to live faithfully afterwards. And if there's anyone here uh, that wants to become a Christian and understands what has to be done. We've seen in, in the lesson that there's, it's not a really easy road to take when one becomes a Christian, but we see that reward that's given to those who uh, walk down that road. So if there's anyone here who wants to be a Christian, we'd certainly like to talk to you about those things, get those things done. And if there's a Christian here who is, maybe you're in sin, maybe you're not, uh, you know, maybe you're not, uh, praying or, or worshiping in the right manner, or maybe you're uh, just not following uh, his will, and you need the prayers of the saints, or you need to confess anything, we certainly uh, would love for you to come forth now as we stand and as we sing.